uh, sort of a confirmation that you that like anyone actually can solve the problem. Like you can go at it thinking that you can. A beam is sort of like an affirmation for me, and I think a lot of other kids too. That it's actually yeah, you can do it, and you have done it. This is no such thing. A podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Full disclosure, I have a crush on the organization where I recorded this, and the couple of episodes to follow. Beam Center, as I described to Brian Cohen, one of Beam's co-founders, triggers an emotional reaction in me because it makes me feel the way I did as a little kid at my grandfather's basement workbench. It's a modest place in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, situated between a mixed industrial use neighborhood and the water. If there was a window facing west, you'd see lower Manhattan. But like that workbench, it's just so full of possibility. Tools hang from every available peg. It's well-kempt, but smells of sawdust and glue. In the episode, I interview a talented educator, Alan Riley, who, like so many practitioners in this space, loves designing experiences that help others discover the world the way he does through his own art. And Dove Alperin, a wise and deeply reflective 13-year-old coming up at MS442, who's never missed a session at Beam Center, he says. He wore Hebrew letters around his neck, a chai for those who care, which may have been a gift from his bar mitzvah, which I happen to know was the week before we spoke, and bold blue nail polish on his fingers. I talk more with Beam Center's co-founder, Brian Cohen, in a future episode, and Dove and Alan graciously offer a tour of the center in a short episode that I will release between these two. Meanwhile, we're talking in this episode about learning and making from Beam Center in Brooklyn, New York. Here's Alan and Dove. Tell me about the most recent thing you've made. Uh, Beam Camp, I helped make the salvage station. What's the salvage station all about? Um, It's this huge sort of building with a story behind it that we created at camp this year, which is, it's it's a full building, and it's a sort of sci-fi salvage station, so... It's in space, and it was just hit by an asteroid, and there's all this organic salvage in it, so that is probably the most recent thing that I've worked on making, because I've been there for a few weeks, and I just got back relatively recently. That sounds pretty amazing. So the camp that you're talking about is um, Beam Center has, uh, it falls under the umbrella of a nonprofit that also has a summer camp, right? Uh, I believe that actually Beam Center now is controls Beam Camp as so Beam Center is a non for profit entity that now controls Beam Camp. Right. As of two years ago. Excellent. And now we're obviously at Beam Center in Brooklyn. Uh, Alan, what, how about you? What's the most recent thing you've made? So a couple weekends ago, I had a ten year reunion cast party, a cast reunion party for a film that I made uh, at the public access station in Providence, Rhode Island in uh, 2007. And um, so for for this event, I set up a like a live video interview zone thing with a, a you know somebody who was like playing sort of like a Leonard Maltin film critic. Uh, who's interviewing everybody who came who was involved in the film so it was sort of like an installation of like a like a like a talk show that sounds pretty cool yeah yeah so I made that and and you just made it for fun for the people who were involved yeah it's sort of like to to capture some of the the stories and experiences that went into making this movie um 
but also as like a video art project that was just a fun um, extension of a celebration. Yeah. So so tell me about that's actually a gr- really good uh, segue to tell me a little bit about your background as an educator. Uh, I I don't have any formal um, education in education. I uh, <laughs> I got involved with. Um, I guess, you know, it. I've always, or for a, a long time in my life, I've had some kind of teaching going on. When when I was in high school, I uh, tutored my cousins. And then when I was in college, they had like this peer um, at, at Eugene Lyon College at the new school. They had this peer advisor program. So the first year students would take a class that was taught by the seniors just about like, how to write a paper, how to research, like organizational skills, how to live in New York, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I taught that. um, And then I never saw myself as uh, becoming a teacher or anything. I just, um, but I was interested in learning how to do stuff, like learn, like teaching myself with my friends how to make this film that we just had this party for and, uh, and other things like that. So I was attracted to when I saw an ad for Beam, um, actually the same year in 2007, um, uh, on, on this sort of like punk rock mailing list, and it was just a summer job to work at this sort of startup sleepaway camp, and I looked into it and it seemed really um, interesting and kind of funny, like like the. Um, the premise of building stuff with tools with kids and all this stuff seemed absurd and I was attracted to it kind of on that basis like this seems crazy and funny Um, and while that might not be the most inspiring story it (laughs) I think it's important to represent that because a lot of the time when I when I feel motivated to learn how to do something it's because on some level, I find it funny. Uh, and, but, but yeah, and I had sort of made this connection where I thought, like, okay, I'm going to work at this camp where they do these big projects and see if, if I can do, like, a, like a movie there. Like, we'll do some kind of, like, like gory Conan the Barbarian thing, but with all these kids. And so then I, but then I went to camp and worked as a counselor and they let me do that project. So that movie exists. And then I was like, wait, they're doing, so then I kind of, maybe I just knew this instinctually that they were doing the same thing as I was. Like they were just passionate about self-teaching, about mentorship, about um, like the, like teaching the attitude of um, being able to figure it out and like that confidence of working with other people to make something so that's that's how i got started and then i stuck i stayed i remained involved uh with beam as it evolved from a sleepaway camp and into beam center and have um continued to uh, be involved in designing the program here and um yeah up through our uh more recent work with schools so so do you consider yourself when you when you describe yourself professionally do you call yourself an educator uh yeah i I didn't for a long time but i think now i now i do what do you think was the um the sort of point where you decided (laughs) it was right to introduce yourself that way 
I guess in the really in the past year or so, or or what changed is once I started teaching in schools, I started doing that because prior to that, when I taught at camp or in our after school program or or any other beam related thing, it was sort of more felt like it was artists who were sharing their practice with young people. But then once we started working in schools, um, and I I was in that position of, of teaching in a school. It just made more sense to it helped other people uh, contextualize what was happening more directly, mm-hmm. and it, and it, I realized that that was just true. It was happening. Yeah. So when you if you add like a slash to your to your role as an educator, what what comes after the slash? Is it? Yeah, I guess it depends on the context. Like like some you know really what my job is here is um, I I am a teacher or we call it instructor here to differentiate from the school teachers but i um i'm i'm very involved in the design of the program and designing the process through which we design projects Mm -hmm. you know so there's this and then I, i i work with teachers to help them learn those skills and so there's sort of this um sort of overall program design kind of uh role uh, but uh, yeah, in other contexts, I would say I'm a video artist. Great. Dub, you have kind of a special role here, it sounds like. Uh, Brian described some of your experience here, but I'm curious. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with Beam. So the first time I got involved with Beam was the pilot program for Beam Center After School which was, it started off uh, in the basement of this sort of art place called The Invisible Dog. And um, that was where, like, now we have this whole fancy building. Um, But so the first time I went there, because I figured out about it somehow, because we knew Brian and Danny, we talked to them somehow about something, and they were like, hey, you're going to come do this thing. I was like, sure. And I've been coming to after school. I've been coming after school on a multitude of different days ever since. So I've never missed a session. I don't think I've always had a session here. Whatever. And it sounds like it sounds like in addition to being a, a learner here, you you also do some work with the team to think about what the offerings are and and uh, how the center runs. Is that right? Sure. I mean, yeah. I I like to provide input whether or not it's asked for. <laughs> right. Um, I like to think that it's taken into consideration. I don't actually know whether or not it is. That's but... pretty great, though. That uh, that we have, I think, places in our learning experience where, um, as young people, obviously not everybody gets a chance to be someplace where. Uh, they can actually have input into how the learning experience works. So um, that you have some of that here and, and that your uh, advice and uh, knowledge about what this experience is like from your perspective is taken into consideration is pretty, seems pretty special. Um, when you describe Beam Center um, to friends or to your parents, your parents probably know it pretty well, but to others who don't really know what this is, if, if you were going to describe it to uh, try to get your friend to come along for a program, uh, how would you describe Beam Center? Um, 
I would say it's sort of like a maker space. There's all these tools that you can use that are here, which is really cool because there's very few other places in New York where it's like, kids, come use our power tools. Don't chop your hand off. Right. I mean, I think that itself warrants, uh, is pretty cool. Yeah. So what do you think engages you about the way you think when you're working on projects at Beam as different from other work that you're doing as a student? Um, I mean, there's a lot more doing involved. So like at school, like sometimes there'll be projects, but at Beam there's always like some goal that of building or achieving that then helps you learn whatever the point of it is. But there's always a project to keep you involved, and that's fun. Has this place changed you, do you think? Um, I think so. I mean, it's... Like, I, I mean, it's given me a lot more knowledge about a whole bunch of things, practical and otherwise. So, for example, using a chop saw. I didn't really know how to do that till I came to Beam. Um, and it's also uh, helped me... I don't know. I works with work with people in a way that I haven't uh, necessarily before. Say more about that. So, for example, working with people that I don't like, <laughs> um, or I don't want to say don't like, but have trouble understanding or keeping on task or uh, achieving a certain goal. That can be difficult, but I mean, I have to do it, so I do that here. Don't really, so that's always interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a good example, I think. Um, do you think that it's important that Beam Center is a place outside of school, or um, do you think makerspaces like this should be just happening in the context of school? I mean, for you personally, over there. My school just got $100,000 to build a fab lab. We got it from the uh, from the state city somewhere um, in partnership with BEAM to sort of work that into school, and I think that would be really awesome because I love, I love building things. Uh, so it, that's always fun, and I think having that in, the, in school – just creates a easy way to like at beam like how i said before there's always a project to keep you interested to um, there's always some some sort of goal that in the end you can take back around and learn whatever the point is but i think being able to do that in regular school too would get a lot of people so much more engaged when you have like a task like we're going to build this for this reason and that's how we're going to do it like, and then you actually go ahead and do that, I think that would, for a lot of people, make things a lot more interesting and engage them more once they suddenly actually have something to do rather than hear someone talk about something. Yeah. Tell me about some of the materials. Maybe, Alan, uh, tell me about some of the materials and equipment that you guys use here at the center. So, um, you know, the Beam Center's collection of skills and... <laughs> tools and materials is very broad um, and it's important to when I talk about this stuff I like to explain that um, we're not coming from a point of view where it's like we want 
to teach. This is a program. It's not like we're offering like a specific program in woodworking, electronics, and all these skills. The the skills that we know how to use and that we're offering um, comes through the, the just over the years. The the um, just like what's been built up by the curiosity of the people who have taught here. So you know the. The things that that we've wanted to make or the the things that the, our students have wanted to make have led us to teach ourselves how to do um, certain things but the, so um, what that looks like right now is we have um, we have a wood shop with power tools and hand tools um, we, we have some metalworking equipment like welders and um, and then like a special cutting tools for metal uh, we have a ceramics kiln that doesn't get used a lot, but I'm very interested in it. We've done a little bit of that. It's used a bunch so, of camp. We have one at camp that, get, that gets used a lot. Yeah, yeah, it happens more, it happens more at camp. Um, and that, that has to do with the staffing. Like, there's, there's someone who works at camp who is a ceramic artist, and we don't have anyone here who's really a specialist in that mm. right, right now. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then... Uh, we also uh, do digital fabrication, so laser cutter, 3D printer, CNC. Um, we More recently, the CNC. Yeah, more recently, <coughs> the CNC. We have electronics, which would mean like circuitry, soldering, um, you know, but also like prototyping circuits uh, with Ar Arduinos and coding. Um, cool. You know, it's pretty much anything. But then that's just like a list of skills but then it's like oh we also know how to like make like giant kaleidoscopes and like <laughs> satellite dishes that you are like powered by mushrooms and like things that like you would never think of as a thing in itself or or like as, as <laughs> you would never think of that it's just it's just out of the blue it just comes from the context mm. so with <laughs> you know like like the, the the places that it like the reason why we know how to do or like the reason why i know how to do electronics is because of working on a boombox project you know so it's not it's because of the boombox that i know electronics it's not the electronics that led me to boombox yeah do you think you would have learned it any other way like do you think you would have gravitated <laughs> to electronics were it not for the boombox? Well, I mean, it's, you know, for me personally, there is more backstory to that. So I have a long history of having a relationship with electronics of some kind. So that was just, I, um, I think I, I, I learned a lot more about um, soldering and building circuits from scratch in that, in that context. But I, uh, I think I already had some affinity for having an interest about it that, that preexisted that. And like that goes all the way back to when I was a kid, like trying to get video games to work and stuff like that, like blowing in the Nintendo cartridge, which is something that you don't necessarily know about. Oh, that's so interesting. I know how to get it. So, so if you if you if you look back at where the spark for you comes from as somebody who who makes and whether as an artist or as an educator who's creating experiences, um, like. Where where did the spark happen for you as a kid? Was it that your uh, like Nintendo blowing into cartridges? I, I think well, there's like three examples that I could give. Um, 
So I do think that um, having like having some like that that sounds very it sounds funny, but I do think that there's a lot in there or like the amount of hours that I put into trying to like install DOS games or like get the Nintendo to work when it wasn't working um, definitely left me with like an inclination to like nudge things around until they work and knowing how to do that and being really attracted to situations that involve that. So now I, I connect that with like being interested in video art and sort of signal processing. But just in terms of building stuff and working with tools, the other two examples would just be that, you know, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't in, a, in any sort of environment where I was trusted to learn how to use tools. But my grandfather did trust me to, to do some of it. So he had a shop in the basement. So he would show me um, how to use the jigsaw or the bandsaw and these, these things. And it felt so good to be trusted that I think that left me with a very deep desire to um, do more of that. And I observe that here when I trust young people to learn how to do things and then they get the chance to do it they feel good because they 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 they, they have that experience of being trusted and accomplishing something and fulfilling a goal like what dove was talking about like we're doing this for this reason and here's how to do it and then i trust but and then the next part of that is i trust you to do it mm. so what do you hope with that in mind mm -hmm. this episode in part is about identity and um what happens for young people when learning experiences are designed so that sort of production is at the center so um what do you hope is the impact for young people uh being a part of beam center mm, i i think the the main thing is um just a sense of agency and having that attitude of I can figure this out whether it's so whether that's applied in school like oh here's this curriculum that I have to learn or like I have to take this test or something like I could figure out how to do that or like I, I can figure out what the parts are that go into succeeding at this you know mm -hmm. that, that that so it's sort of just an overall attitude because you know I I also like the idea of people leaving beam um or or going going forward with their um their lives knowing how to use drills and building stuff but it's sort of like it's it's like if dove learns how to make a website here i want him to then be like oh yeah i figured out how to make that website i know how to build a house or something you know or like i can fix my car that that kind of attitude of, of being able to trust yourself to figure something out that's super powerful so your your interest is in how young people uh if i can if i can rephrase mm -hmm. um in how they apply some of the sort of dispositions and uh skills that they've learned to new problems mm -hmm. uh or, or new goals yeah great so dove yes is that the impact um not so much for me i don't think like, I have since, like, a very young age, I've always 
come at a problem with the idea or with the thought that I can achieve it somehow. And I think for me, BEAM has been more of a way to have resources to then go and try to achieve that. But I think that sounds right for like an overall goal or for a lot of other people. But I, I don't know. I've never had that. Like I've always, if I have a problem, I've always come at it with the idea that I can solve it somehow. I just need to figure out how. And so being for me has just been a, another, has been like a resource to help me do that. So if there was a greatest impact of beam on, on your life and experience, what has it been? Yeah, sort of a confirmation that you that like anyone actually can solve the problem. Like you can go at it thinking that you can, but beam is sort of like an affirmation for me and I think a lot of other kids too that it's actually, yeah, you can do it and you have done it. Great. So I'm going to shift a little bit. So there's right now... Um, something of an obsession among educators and uh, nationally as we talk about what skills are relevant for the future and whether you call it computing or you call it STEM or um, computer science education um, and and there is nuance to each of those things for sure but um, I'm interested to talk to you guys a little bit about how Beam sees that conversation and what's important about that conversation and to talk a little bit to educators about um, your perspective about how to frame uh, those skills and, and how to frame what's important about the conversation around uh, computer science being so important to teach right now. So um, for starters, can you guys describe a little bit about one or two of the projects happening at Beam in the last, let's say, in the last year that incorporate computing. Let's let's call it um, for the sake of this conversation. Sure. Um, okay. So an example of a computer-related project that happened very recently um, over the summer. Uh, one of the instructors here, Jeff Wood, um, designed a summer a day camp project that was making a robotic uh, mini golf course so what that meant is that there were sort of like animatronic arduino controlled obstacles for this course and then the, this is for um i think it was for elementary school age students so it wasn't super intensive but they um you know they 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 uh adjusted the timing of their obstacles and then built a cardboard uh, obstacle that was attached to a s servo motor and then connected to an Arduino that ran the, the timing program for the, the motion. So for people who don't know what a servo motor is and an Arduino, can you super, actually Dove, can you quickly explain what those two things are? Uh, sure. An Arduino is a microcontroller. So it's a, a small computer, nowhere near as powerful um, as the ones that most people carry around in their pocket, but um, it has enough to sort of power output power through different pins and do timers and uh, control anything that pretty much takes an electronic signal to do something. Um, and servo the servo motor. motor, which is in this case what it's controlling, uh, is a little motor that can turn 
uh, they can go 180, you can turn 180 degrees, and, um, you can sort of control how far it moves in one direction, so you can get, for example, in the case of a golf course, maybe something that's swinging by moving a piece of cardboard that's attached to the edge, and it, the, that's attached to the motor, and it's sort of swinging by adjusting how, how many degrees it's turning, then you can since it's electronic, you can change how fast it does that and how slow it does that and if it does it at all using the Arduino. So with the Arduino, you would control the outputs of whatever comes from the servo motor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another Arduino project that we did um, that emphasizes more of the like the physical computing aspect of it uh, is terrariums um, or like a digital terrarium. So uh, we, we did a project um, also with uh, with Dove School MS442, uh, where they the students built these uh, acrylic plastic cases for for plants, and they selected a plant that they were going to take care of, and then they wrote uh, custom Arduino software that um, could detect the soil moisture or the the temperature and um, turn on water or heat lamps um, you know to sort of create a self-regulating terrarium some people in my class did that last year Mm -hmm. um, that sounds pretty amazing one that I did last year is the Aiden project I got yeah yeah I got a bunch of code written for that but it was just too many LEDs to solder we have still somewhere like a string of LEDs unfinished Um, but so that one was written um, to run on the Raspberry Pi, which is another uh, board. It's a single board computer, so this one actually runs an operating system. Um, in this case, we use Linux, and uh, I, I wrote some Python code for it. Um, that would, it's, sort of, it's designed as a game where you would connect different wires, and you have to figure out which wires connected to save different people. That would be, um, and you could tell the different people based on a little... Uh, eight like eight segment screen mm. um and so that was that was like a fun little project although again somewhere i think it's still here we have a string of unfinished leds from us trying to get them all done in time but it was pretty cool what about your the second project that you did though, the with the weather um oh yeah that one was fun too um that's also that was uh, I don't know where it is right now. I, but I it, have it. Yeah, it's been, it was running for a while. We built a e-ink display thing, so we purchased an e-ink display online. And then we connected it to a smaller Raspberry Pi called the Raspberry Pi Zero W, and we wrote some Python code to uh, display different important information on the e-ink. Uh, on the e-ink screen, sort of as like a little hub for whatever information you wanted to put there. So we had the time running and the weather running and a few other different little widgets that was on there. Mm. Um, and that was pretty that was pretty cool too. Um, that we also wrote in Python because it's easy to execute Python and control different things. and a lot of Raspberry Pi libraries are written in it. Um, but so that that was pretty fun. And then uh, you know this is sort of leading question but is there is there anyone at beam center who really was able to help you with that project or what how did you how did that project get developed a lot of google 
Yeah. <laughs> I guess the point is that I, you know, I just, they, they, that was a very self-directed project. <laughs> and actually something that we should talk about since we're both here is just the fact that, you know, I'm, I like your website, um, but just the, the, yeah, will you talk, will you explain the website pro- project? Yes. So, um, I do a lot of, I write a lot of software for myself and other people at home too. That's like, I, I love writing code. That's, I do that a lot. And so, um, since I like doing that, I took a thing here where we would make a, uh, basic website in HTML and CSS. So I, I wrote, sorry, I, uh, so I wrote a website um, with Jack, and we set it all up, um, and then I was like, how can I do more with this, and then I set up an email associated with it, so it's like, dove at the website domain, and, um, then I was like, then the class is done, and over the years, I've kept on iterating it on it, so now it has, like, Google sign-in that runs to a back, like, a back-end server that I set up that runs on my laptop sometimes, and Google Analytics tracking so I can see the people's IP addresses that go there. And there's like a chat function on the page where you can send a message to the creators of the site. Um, but so I just kept on iterating on that as when I was, when I didn't have another project I was doing, I kept going back and adding something. And so that's really fun. It's not currently up right now, but. Oh, it's not? What happened? Just, uh, I have to, I have all the files. In oh, backup. you didn't renew it? No, it was not. We have the domain, but oh, the problem oh, oh. was um the hosting. Hosting. We never got figured it. that out because ah, it was it. it was under a Beam Center hosting account. I have like a I have a backup of it though that's like two edits old. Mm-hmm. So. You you mentioned uh, that coding was something you love to do. Yeah, I do it all the time. What is it that you love about it? I can make a computer do what I want. Um. So. I like writing backends. I like writing backend server software because that's it's always a challenge to make it work because you have to work with someone else who was writing to who's writing the front end, which is making it look nice, and you need to make those two parts work together, and you need to figure out why it's not working with sometimes like minimal, just it's not working, it suddenly stops, and that's always fun. And I also like um, uh, Android and iOS development because mm. that's always a challenge too. So you like the challenge? I like the challenge, and I like being able to like make it do what I want and be able to have a problem that I want to achieve. And like I have a problem I want to overcome with technology and then build something that does that. Yeah. So I, I, I hope it's not too much of a leap, but one of the things that strikes me is the way that you describe what you love about coding is something that um, you described earlier um about loving the skills that you took from your grandfather's workbench Mm -hmm. was that there was this moment of agency where you were being trusted and you could sort of uh be set off to solve problems on your own in a way that other environments maybe um weren't enabling you so it's not really it's not really a question but but kind of a realization uh and i like i really like the way that you put it is uh, in a way you're seeing code as uh, another one of, and you tell me if I'm leaping too far, but uh, as another one of the tools in this shop is like, 
is it um, an, another alongside uh, some skills with a bandsaw and knowing how to measure an angle and those kinds of things is is code in that set of things as as um, just another tool for you no everyone sort of like has a weapon of choice um so for someone that might be using the bandsaw or the chop saw to manipulate wood for me my weapon of choice would be coding like that's how i like to approach problems that's my thing sort of that's what i like to do so in your in your quiver yes this is your weapon of choice yeah and then and then i then i like being able to take my i like being able to take that and then using that in conjunction with other skills like using the bandsaw and building an enclosure or something of this controls and physical but yeah i yes that is how so a lot of this stuff is being talked about where this is September um, and we're getting ready for another world maker fair at the end of the month here in Queens. Uh, and I'm curious to talk a little bit with you guys who are makers and who have been doing this stuff probably for a lot longer than the commercial instantiation of the maker movement. I'm doing air quotes. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you um, what you think of the maker movement. And uh, and for you, Alan, whether it changes your practice at all um, or, you know, helps or hinders or uh, how you feel about it. And for you, Dove, from your perspective as a young person who's in the process of um, uncovering an identity for yourself that very much is about uh, making things and putting things into the world, um, your perspective about what the value is? Um, I mean, I think that there's, uh, I have a friend who really is sort of irked by the commercialization of the maker movement where it's no longer, I'm gonna go make something because that's useful or that's just something I want to do and I'm going to go figure out how to do that. But now I go online and I build a kit with instructions and like, you know, like, oh, that looks interesting. But I think that now it's not necessarily like has to be thought about and this is the maker movement, but I think it's a really good way to now, in a world where I can go online and click a button and something shows up the next day, um... I think that the the sort of even the even with the commercialization of the maker movement, I think it's a good way to then get people into building things on their own. Um, because if they go ahead and buy a kit, that they're like, oh, that's fun. How can I blank? How can I do blank? And I think that's a really, I think it's a good starting point for a lot of people. Uh, do blank? You mean go further? Yeah, how can, more. like, if I buy a kit and I'm like, oh, that's really cool, now using these, like, sort of skills, how can I make such and such, right? And I think then that's a really good start of, for some, I think it's, for a lot of people, it's a really good start of sort of introducing it to the larger idea of being a maker. Mm. So Maker Fair is, for those who haven't been, is this huge uh, event Right, where um, hundreds, I would say, of makers from all over the country who are doing everything from 
Flying drones. Flying drones to building um, really sophisticated, you know, maybe using textiles and, and computing with textiles and doing some really amazing stuff uh, sort of out of their garage. Um, it has also become a place where the new kind of uh, chic maker tools like 3D printers and... Um, uh, CNC manufacturers and those kinds of folks come out to demo their wares. So uh, it, it's really kind of like a, a, what would you call it? It's like a geeked out conference um, where everybody can sort of be equal parts participant uh, and um, demonstrator. Does that, is that a fair description? Yeah. Um, and I, so it's sort of also, it's, it's it's equal yeah what you said equal parts participant demonstrator and then it's also sort of i in conjunction with that sort of i was saying introduction uh, to the maker movement with the commercialization like that's also now become really entwined in it too where it sort of tries to get people off the ground i think through things like maker shed which i just looked at here to see they have all these different kits to make whatever um and and now that's become like a big part of Maker Fair, and I think overall it's pretty cool. Yeah. So I'll it. I'll make sure we'll have Maker Shed and uh, Arduino and Servo Motors and some of the stuff that we've talked about so far. I'll make sure I put some links in the show notes. Um, but uh, do you think that as a young person who's kind of coming up in in this world and who cares about computing and who cares about um, solving problems on your own? Um, does do events like Maker Fair uh, change, or or uh, yeah, change in any way um, your identity, how you see yourself, or how you see your future? Uh, does it help? Um, I mean, every year I go to Maker Fair, uh, Maker Fair, I always there's always something new that I'm like, oh, that's cool. I want to do something with that. That looks interesting. Let mm. me do some more research about that. And I think every time I go, like every new thing I, in, just in general, every new thing I research, every new thing I try sort of expands my universe as Dove into other things. So I think definitely that is like a way to introduce new things to ever, anyone that goes. Mm -hmm. Do you think it, it has any special impact on young people or, or is it? Um, anybody who's looking to make things I think for young people there's something to be said for like finding finding out what you want to do but even for just anyone that's I think it does the same thing for anyone as long as they have the right mindset like oh I can do that here's all these different examples of things I think anyone that's willing to accept that that all does the same thing for them that's pretty cool so one of the cool features of Maker Fair is that there are tents all over the grounds. And in New York, they run it out of the New York Hall of Science, which we'll also link to. And each one of these tents has kind of a theme area, right? So one way to look at it that Dove is inspiring me to think about is like if each one of those tents is kind of an area for makers... Um, for young learners, it's, it's kind of... Each one of them is an opportunity to get engaged by like the boom box that you described earlier, that's going to lead them to all kinds of um, uh, building new skills and, and, you know, a, a long and twisted road of um, 
you know, learning all kinds of new things, but each one of them is kind of an engagement point in a way. Um, if you, if you want to use it that way. So, um, I'm curious, Alan, you haven't, you haven't had a, a minute to talk about how you feel about the maker movement. Well, I've, I've never been to the maker fair. I don't, I don't have much contact with it as a movement. Um, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I think I know of it just cause we do purchase stuff from spark fun and these sort of um, companies that align themselves in their branding with the idea of the maker movement. Um, but it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like, you know, there's just like a very large scale transformation in the way that people are relating to tools and knowledge that is, that's tied to the internet and the availability of, of, um, information and communication about how to do stuff and also access to inexpensive supplies and tools. Um, and so we're just in a moment right now where like all this stuff is flowing. And so in, you know, the maker movement is just a, it's a commercial organization of that impulse. Um, but just in so far as like whole foods was a, a commercial formalization of like a large scale cultural shift toward organic food and other things like that, that happened over the past, you know, 25 years or so. Mm. So it's, it's, you know, it, I think that it's really great when people learn how to do stuff. Um, uh, but I, but I think it's exciting to think of it in like a broader historical point of view. Like, you know, the, the in the seventies, they had the whole earth catalog and the, the slogan was access to tools. And now we're like living in the, the, the consequences of, of that sort of framework of like the internet gives you access to tools and people can figure it out whether they identify as a maker or not. Mm. So that, you know, that I, I think that, and that's actually the deeper connection with computing and what a computer is, which is a tool that simulates tools. So, you know, pe I, I just, the I'm tool a, to end all tools. Yeah. It's like, I just don't know if the, if, if that historical meaning or, or the significance of computers is understood within the way that STEM is discussed right now, hmm. um, to go back to that topic a little bit too, but I mean, the, the original like purpose of, of a personal computer was to like create a, um, an interface for extending human knowledge, like the, you know, the augmentation of human intellect or something was the original proposal for the computer. Uh, so it's, it, you know, we're just, I, all I'm trying to say is that we're, we're living in, in the consequences of a very long, uh, large-scale cultural shift it's great <laughs> so can can I, I yeah it's a um well put and and a really i think important backdrop for this entire conversation can we so as quickly as we can because i don't want to keep you guys forever and and um uh i want to keep things moving but we talked a little bit before about at Beam, it sounds like one of the constraints when you start to design an experience for young people is the professionals that you have in the room and, and what kind of expertise and experience people are kind of coming to the table with. So if you have somebody who knows ceramics, mm -hmm. you're doing some stuff with ceramics. That was the little bit that we've talked about how experiences get designed here. And I'm curious, would you talk a little bit more granularly about 
how usually um, projects and experiences here come to be and um, a little bit about how that process works and uh, when do you decide something works? When do you decide to bag it? When do you decide to maybe uh, reiterate on something? Well, we are always reiterating on on things. There, there, there haven't been many examples of projects that were just straight up repeated verbatim. Um, but to, to explain why, uh, could just go into the background of, of projects in general. So the idea of projects at Beam, um, you know, starts in the context of the summer camp in New Hampshire, um, where we're commissioning a large scale architectural project from a designer. And then we collaborate with them to build it with the 100 campers. And in, and then in addition to that, we've had uh, many summers of visiting artists come up and share their practice with the campers. So there's this sort of like point of view on the content of, of the project comes from the, the curiosity and um, sort of love of making something that comes from a, an adult's um, real world practice. And so we've had a lot of projects that happen um, outside of the context of like formal education in school that are just uh, artist or, or um, maker of some kind who uh, brings their their passion and then shares that with the with the kids mm. by making something that that exists within that universe. Mm. And then the value of that is that it um, it contains within it a point of view and a point, you know, a purpose and a whole set of criteria for self evaluation. So it's not like just saying like, okay, you know, we're going to make comics and you just make whatever kind you want. It's sort of like, I am an artist. I make this kind of work. This is what I think is good. This, these are some concepts you might want to use to, to judge what you're making. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's an objective. Um, but in the context of schools, we, uh, you know, we, we go through several different phases. Um, right now we've, Recently, we've been doing a lot of professional development sessions with yeah. teachers where they come and they learn about like Beam's approach in general to building stuff and, and um, making things with a point of view and um, project-based learning. And then we do uh, individualized sessions where we brainstorm a project with that teacher. So it's a collaboration between the Beam instructor and the school teacher mm. where they, they kind of share... We talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about what they want to, what they're interested in, like what kind of skills they have used before, what kind of stuff they've made. Um, you know, and I, I, when I talk to people about that, I get everything from Ikea furniture to, you know, it's kind of stories like mine where family members taught them how to build things or people who were, um, you know, uh, air, you know, airplane engineers in a previous career and all this stuff yeah. that you never would have known about. Um, and, and then also talk about the curriculum of their classroom and what they are teaching and what they, they're interested in mm. about it. And through all of that discussion, we come up with some idea of a concept of something that we would want to make for that class and then proto prototype it, which mm. would mean, physically building it and figuring out all the problems 
Yeah. And, and then coming up with the materials list and lesson plan based on the prototype. Super cool. Yeah. So you guys are, um, uh, would it be accurate to, to, in the context of the PD that you're doing, you guys are, are sort of project coaches? Yeah, it's, we're collaborators. Okay. You know, we see ourselves as being um, collaborators with the teachers. You know, they're, they're offering their point of view and their curiosity and their curriculum. And um, we're offering, uh, you know, uh, some training into the mindset that we're working within here. And um, also the, just the, the hands-on skills for how to use the tools or how to do the coding. And um, if you could capture that mindset mm -hmm. that we're using here. You, you just said yeah if you could capture that mindset in a phrase or a word what is it the one i've been using lately is uh, i can figure it out that makes a lot of sense yeah <laughs> it's not that catchy but that's how i've been thinking about it right uh well uh practical for yeah sure. yeah i guess it's practical it's you know it, it might be it might just be agency so that's uh i i love how you put that um if you could offer as as somebody who's worked on developing these programmatic experiences and um and you know designing these projects if you could offer to to new educators who are kind of coming into this work if there was a mantra right or like some um key piece of wisdom that you could offer them about specifically about your process and and how successful projects get put together here what would what would the mantra be trust i think the main thing is trust you know i trust the students i feel trusted by them to teach the content that we're offering or the pro or to lead them through the project you know i i'm inviting um, students to, to work on a project. And so there's this reciprocal trust that I think drives everything. Um, other than that, it's just, you know, prototype, mm -hmm. uh, build it first, figure out what it is that you want to make and why you are interested in it and be as honest as you can be in articulating the reason why you think this is a good thing to make. Yeah. I think it's, I don't know a lot about being a, a school teacher because I've never really been one aside from when I've been invited into other classrooms but but because there's this pre-existing curriculum that um, teachers are required to implement there's a kind of a, a professional distancing between themselves and what they're teaching and I think that is that is necessary but when you're doing a project um, or it can be necessary I don't know enough about it to really tell um, what's going on, but, mm -hmm. but when you're teaching a project, um, it's very important to share your own point of view and why you think this is worth doing. Mm -hmm. Um, so point, yeah, trust, prototyping and point of view. Great. Um, Dove, so here's a, an, another, uh, maybe tough question, but but I don't know. Um, so I think as a country, certainly as an education system, 
there's one idea right now that when it comes to the way we teach technology, that we're too focused on the technology and not focused enough on the ideas. Do you think that's true? Um, I think it, I think it really depends on where, who's teaching it and sort of what their motivation is, right? Because, and also who you're teaching to. Because for some people, it, like, I find just trying to help them learn something or just watching other people in my classes, for some people, there needs to be, like, a reason that there's, that something's being done. And that's, like, that's how they learn. Mm. Right? So there's an idea behind an action. And for some people, I think that there's, it's easier for them to learn and say, here's an action. Right now, how do I apply that to an idea or whatever I want to do? What will you do with it? Right. Yeah. So, I think it's too nuanced in anything in the education system at all to be able to say we are doing it wrong mm-hmm. or you're doing it right because there's so many different kids and so and then therefore so many different ways that people learn. I think that there has to there has to be a balance between it. So you need to, for anything, when you're trying to teach a class full of people, there needs to be, in, in this specific one, but the balance between ideas and action, uh, I don't think it's necessarily been found yet, but I don't think it has to, I feel like a lot of talk about it makes it seem like they're sort of mutually exclusive, which is you talk about ideas and then you apply an action to it mm-hmm. or you have this action and then you then go and sort of find an idea and those are sort of two different things they're yeah. talked about as separate things i think that there has to be a balance found between them that can work for everyone where it's sort of one thing where you are applying like you start off with sort of maybe a goal in which you need, in which there's ideas, right? There's ideas about this goal, which is we need to get X and Y done to achieve this. And then you work on, and then with, in conjunction with the action, and you need to figure out maybe as like this whole planning thing, what are the ideas? Great, we have those ideas. Now, how do we action? And that has to be sort of one fluid process instead of here's a thing, we work on that for a while. Now here's this whole separate thing, we do that. Mm. I think it needs to, there needs to be something combining Hmm. So if that makes any sense. It does make some sense. Um, so if I ask, what what should the future of learning and education look like? What comes to mind? Um, I think that's hard to answer. I think that I'm going to give like a sort of broad answer to that one. It needs to take the shape of whatever it needs to be which it, what I'm trying to say is it needs to, it, it has to be different things for different people, right? Because there needs to be some way to accommodate learning for everyone. And I don't necessarily know what that means yet. And I think that there's this whole contention, as you were saying, going around throughout this country about it. But um, yeah, there's the jargon is personalized learning. There you go. Personalized learning. What does that mean? Uh, no idea. Right. People are still working on that. Right. That's, so I think that there has to be, 
I think that that's really important, and I think that that has to be implemented for sort of this idea because we're if we can't try and implement certain parts of that and then leave other parts out and then you're stuck with sort of like one system that's left in the 19th century and one that's in the 21st and you're trying to fit those together there has to be some sort of consensus on how we can get this idea that everyone's trying to push but has no idea what they're actually pushing that there needs to be some general idea of what that actually is and what that means Mm people learn Mm. it's beautifully said i wish i could bring you along to meetings here and there so uh alan when you think about the potential future uh of education what excites you most what would it look like if we were to um evolve the way it works now and uh and and do better incorporating some of what you guys have proven to be um i think really important about the learning experience uh i guess well i guess the one of the most important things that could be pulled out from projects or just abstracted and made general is um, that makes projects work really well is that uh, they have a narrative structure baked into them where there's a purpose in mind there's a and there's a be- there's a beginning middle and end and there's a reason for it to happen so building a project kind of more naturally connects with the way that um, people experience their lives and make sense of themselves in relation to the things that are happening around them um, so it, it might work better if, or it might, I could see school and just education changing more in that direction where um, the structure of whatever the educational program is, uh, isn't, isn't based on like, like an abstracted list of required content, but is, but maybe has that in it, but it's structured so that it follows the way that human experience works. Maybe that I'm not sure what that would be yet, but that's sort of where I'm I'm heading in my thinking about it. Just that it, it needs to be more narrative and, and not in like a phony way of like we're gonna make this into a game and have like it be a story. I mean like like is is this experience going to am I going to be able to turn this experience into something that makes sense and feels fulfilling to me over whatever span of time I'm here for? Mm. does that make sense i think so okay yeah i think i yeah so more of an emphasis on um the maybe just redesigning or designing with more of an understanding of human experience in mind but then again that's like what what is that right yeah coming back to something dub said about being individualized and and trying to figure out how to make the experience um the right one for the person mm-hmm. i i mean i think that beam does a really good job of that and like i i think that a lot of the like my school i think does a really good job of that a lot of the teachers and i think beam does a good job like how alan was talking about trust of like you work with their they work with all the different kids to um to sort of find a thing that works for them and find a way for them to work on the project and do what they want to do and um and I think that that is sort of like 
and I that's what I like so much about Beam a lot of it and that's what I like about my school too um so I think that those that sort of as I was saying how there needs to be a greater conversation with educators all over like let's I like the idea of taking how Beam does it how my school does it and how hundreds of other schools and figuring out what does that mean before we try and push it or sort of figure out what it means to sort of have it be personalized and actually work as a personalized system without just doing it for the sake of saying, hey, look, we have personalized learning. Mm. I think that's important. Mm. Guys, thank you for doing this. Dove, uh, do you want to quickly shout out your school because you have uh, said how good a job that they are doing? Do you want to... Uh, Tell us who's doing such an amazing job, not by name necessarily, yeah. but just uh, uh, where you hail from. My school, MS442 in Brooklyn, uh, used to be called, as of last year, Carroll Garden School for Innovation. Uh, I don't know if that's still our name because we just moved buildings. We're no longer in Carroll Gardens. Um, but Middle School 442 in the public school system in New York. It's pretty awesome. I like it. Right on. And other, how about um, any projects that you're working on that you want to point people to? Your website, I know which you said is down at the moment, but uh, you want to shout a URL in case you get it back up? Uh, sure. It's a weird web website. It'll, I, I've been doing some things. It'll probably, I'll put it, probably put it back up within the next few months, but weirdweb.website. Weirdweb.website. Yeah, All I right, bought well, it. The, the website TLDs are really expensive now, but we got it like a, a few hours after they came out. Pretty yeah, They were pretty a few awesome. cents. Weirdweb.website. We will link to it uh, in the show notes. Guys, this has been uh, such a huge pleasure to talk to you both. Um, we're, uh, this is um, a special episode for me because this uh, area of uh, education is one that's really close to my heart. And um, this idea of making uh, for the sake of learning is one that's uh, probably hundreds of years old. But um, when I think of heroes of mine in this space, I think of people like Seymour Papert and uh, who, who thought really seriously that the idea of constructing a thing uh, means a lot for how we make meaning around it, both about the thing itself, but also the kinds of skills that come along with it and the dispositions that come along with it. And one of the huge pleasures that it is to talk to you guys is um, that I think a lot of the people who I think of really fondly, I never met him as a, as a thinker, um, but uh, I think that spirit is very alive here at Beam, and, and part of the reason that I love coming here and I love chatting with talented educators and students who are loving being here. So thank you for doing it. Thanks. Thanks. This podcast was produced in partnership with City University of New York's master's program in youth studies. Learn more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us at mouse.org. Sound assistance was provided by Alex Fleming. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and a young person who I once had the pleasure of working with. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. 
podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found linked wherever you downloaded the show.